I beg your pardon, sir. You are Mr. Van Meer, aren't you? That's my name, yes. Well, my name's Haverstock. You don't know me. I'm an American. I just happen to be on my way to your luncheon. Oh. And then perhaps... Well, that's very kind of you, sir. Come, come, come. It's all in a good cause. Savoy Hotel. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are halfway through the 1940 nominees with the second Alfred Hitchcock-nominated film, Foreign Correspondent. Yeah, and I don't know which of the three movies this is we should be talking about. <laughs> It's really funny that you say that because I feel like this less than Rebecca was just one movie. I felt like that was three separate movies that blended together really well. And you were like, no, but the tone of it is kind of the same the whole time. And this to me just felt like a straight up political thriller. Oh, I don't know. It takes such wild tonal shifts at a couple of points. Um, But like, I think plot wise, it mostly stays on the same page until the ending till the last 20 minutes and i think this is like i think this is a worse movie than rebecca spoiler because rebecca's amazing uh but i think it's still a very good movie and i think it's weirdly kind of a better hitchcock movie it feels way more hitchcock i mean one it's not a gothic thriller so it doesn't have that tone that rebecca has it has the more contemporary hitchcock kind of feel well, contemporary to the time, not to to today. <laughs> yeah. Our lead is a kind of sweaty guy unraveling a conspiracy who is forever standing on a window ledge at the top of a building. So it's like extremely Hitchcock. <laughs> That's a really good point. I will say that this movie is definitely going to be a challenge to rate, for me anyway. Not because I want to give it a 10. <laughs> Uh, and I don't want to give it a one either, but I think that it's like, we'll get there. Uh, so plot wise. We start off with a long and kind of confusing, like, text crawl about how great foreign correspondents are, which then jumps immediately into the first character we see, basically, who's the editor of the New York Morning Globe, going, foreign correspondents are pieces of shit and I hate all of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, essentially. <laughs> and he decides he's going to get a crime reporter from New York who just punched out a cop in an awesome piece of backstory that never comes back. <laughs> And just hire him to be his foreign correspondent so that somebody does some real reporting over there about how World War II is going to break out any minute. And he, for some strange reason, even though the guy's name is Johnny Jones, which is an extremely, like, Stan Lee character name, decides to give him the pen name of Huntley Haverstock. <laughs> which somehow never stops being funny. No. And I'm sort of going through this because we have a lot of plot, but I think a lot of this, like, really works. Hitchcock can make a movie. <laughs> he gets over to Europe. He has sort of two people he's supposed to follow around. One is a guy who runs the not at all ominously named Universal Peace Party. 
<laughs> whose name is Stephen Fisher, and the other is just this Dutch diplomat whose name is Van Meer. He meets up with Van Meer on the way to the Universal Peace Party party. The two of them end up sharing a car and having a brief chat about people feeding birds, despite the fact that war is about to break out. They get to the party, and Jones, a.k.a. Haverstock, immediately gets the hots for the Universal Peace Party president's daughter, Carol, which makes sense because she's Lorraine Day and she's fucking great. Also, I think she's literally the only woman in this entire world. Uh, I mean, under 40. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Van Meer, even though he took a car to the party, disappears. Carol and Haverstock have a meet-cute fight thing about honestly nothing. They just kind of need to be attracted to each other, but also fighting. He says, like, amateurs shouldn't be the ones stopping wars. And she's like, what does that mean? And he's like, honestly, I don't even know. (laughs) I think basically what he's saying is that the Universal Peace Party is not government-affiliated, and there's no bureaucrats in it, so their work is pointless, and they don't know what they're doing. Right. But, like, then that argument instantly kind of falls away (laughs) when we get to the fact that, holy shit, we're in a Hitchcock movie now, because we move to the Netherlands, right? Yes. Oh, Amsterdam. So yes, and Van Meer gets shot by a photographer in the middle of a huge crowd. And like all reporters, Haverstock immediately takes charge of the situation and tries to chase down the gunman in a frankly rad-as-hell chase sequence. Where we meet my favorite character. Scott Foliot. I love Scott Foliot. Two Fs, both lowercase. I don't know if I love Scott Foliot or if I just love the monologue Scott Foliot gives about his own name during a car chase, which is both amazing and hilarious. Okay, why I love Scott Foliot is really tied up with that monologue. In all situations where everyone else is like sweaty and freaking out, he is the stereotypical, completely relaxed British guy who's like, oh yes, Trap, if you'll just point that gun over there or whatever. He just never gets rattled. And his story about his own name is hilarious. I mean, he also like takes over as basically our protagonist for like a 40 minute stretch in the back half of the movie because he's just like way more competent than Haverstock, who's uh, by that point in the narrative, like completely head over heels for Carol. And that's his entire life, which, again, can't blame the guy. But like it does kind of mean that somebody else needs to like untangle the international web of intrigue we're about to get to. Um, where the car chase ends with the car they are chasing with the assassin in it mysteriously disappearing near a windmill. Haverstock slash Jones figures out something is fishy with the windmill because the sail occasionally turns backwards and gets fully and Carol to go try and get the Dutch police who have 
run off thinking the car is like further down the road. And also so that he can be alone during the part where all this crazy shit happens. Yes. Where he goes inside, sees a bunch of suspicious people talking to each other, wanders upstairs in this windmill and finds Van Meer, the guy who was shot five minutes ago in the movie, alive and drugged out of his mind. (laughs) He sort of tries to tell Jones what's going on, but can't because of, you know, all the drugs. And there's this great, like, stealth sequence that Hitchcock stages immaculately as our protagonist sneaks around trying not to be seen by all of these people and barely managing it. And then he runs off to try and get the police himself with the help of a small, very clearly American girl, phonetically speaking Dutch. And (laughs) then they come back to the windmill, and as is always the case in a Hitchcock movie, the criminals have completely cleaned up the scene of the crime and left an airtight alibi with, like, a guy hiding upstairs going, What? There was no criminal enterprise here. I'm just a simple drunk man hiding in a windmill. He apparently lives there and says he was asleep all day. Right. But, like, just in case you think Haverstock is insane, that guy then does this weird thing where he, like, dirties up his own hands because his hands were too clean to have been sleeping in a windmill for a full day. We then get to the, thankfully very short period of this movie where, like, everybody thinks Haverstock is insane. The criminal conspiracy, thankfully, immediately sends two guys to try and kill him at his hotel. He escapes with the help of Carol, who kind of inexplicably falls instantly in love with him in this scene. So this was maybe my only major complaint with the plot here, And one thing, I really do appreciate that we are only halfway through the movie because I checked the timestamp because I was like, usually if it's a their enemies to being in love thing, it happens very late in the film. Yeah. So I appreciate that. But they basically went from she can't stand him to her saying, well, I'm in love with you. And he's saying, well, oh, that's convenient because I'm also in love with you. The end of that whole story arc. Right. And then their story arc is about like distrusting that the other one really means that, which doesn't really ever come together or make very much sense. It's also irritating because there's an easy fix here where the attempt to escape from these like two conspirators that are trying to murder him could actually pull them together. And instead he's like, okay, I will leave because I have been incredibly awkward and you have no reason to believe me. But just so you know, when I leave, I'm going to get shot by two guys. And she goes, oh, don't ever leave. I love you. (laughs) And it's like, okay, I guess she kind of has to do that. We could have waited five minutes for her to know for sure the conspiracy is real. But like, whatever. He might have gotten shot. Yeah, I guess. But he also might have not gotten shot. And then she sees him almost get shot, and then it makes sense that she would believe him and be driven together with him in some way, but but, eh, whatever. They get on a boat to England and immediately get, get engaged, as Susan is talking about, and it's frankly nuts. But then we gotta go full Bond movie because Carol goes back to her dad's house and Haverstock slash Jones sees 
the incredibly menacing guy with a triangular nose he saw in the windmill. I thought it was actually because he was wearing a sweater. I Wait, what? That he recognizes him because he was wearing a sweater. I, they keep referring to the sweater. I guess, because I guess they can't go like, you know that guy's nose. He looks like assistant villain in a Bond movie. Yeah, oh, totally. And he is an assistant villain in a Bond movie. <laughs> right, because Carol's dad is like, oh, if we suspect him... Let me throw him off the trail and see what's going on and leaves the room to go talk to Krug and is immediately like, okay, they're on to us. The big crime we're doing, you know, the murder crime. What are we going to do about this guy? Murder him? Let's do it. Basically, yes. They agree to hire the most suspicious man in human history. Really? As a fake bodyguard for Haverstock. To immediately try and murder him. And I'm not joking. They walk outside and do not even get across the street before the guy tries to murder him. <laughs> and there's then like a 15 minute sequence of this guy going, eh, not to be suspicious. There's totally somebody following us. It's fine. Let's go to the top of this like 30 story clock tower and just stare over the edge. You know, as men. As men do. And every time that you're bored and want to leave, I'm going to be like, no, you didn't notice the other thing from this height that you can see. I'm making fun of this because it is ridiculous, but it is also incredibly well staged. It is amazing there is still tension to this sequence, given how absurd the setup is. Well, the other thing I really like about it is you're not sure that he's not going to get pushed out of this clock tower. And yet it also manages to be really funny. Like, it almost turns into this kind of 1920s slapstick thing where people keep coming off the elevator right as he's about to push Haverstock over. So he has to stop. Yeah, there kind of keep being sequences like that. The chase scene is funny. I feel like whenever Foliet is on screen, it's funny. Again, I really like that archetype. Right, but it's weird because it doesn't really distract from the, like, rising tension of the thing the way you would think it would. It's just this weird thing where you keep ricocheting back and forth between, like, oh god, is this guy gonna murder a small child to distract Haverstock? And, like... Oh, it's just one damn thing after another for this murderer. He's having a real bad day. <laughs> yep. The end of that sequence is the fake-out death of Haverstock, but it turns out at the last minute he turned around and threw the would-be murderer out of the clock tower. Really just kind of like, Olaid out of the way, and he fell out himself. The would-be murderer was running at him to push him off, and he turned around because he heard the elevator. Right. But all you see at first is this body falling from the tower, and then there's- I really like the way they present it, is there's a newspaper headline where it says, Tragic fall from whatever the tower is, and then scrolls down the paper, and then you finally see this journalist, Haverstock- was questioned by the police, but then was released because he didn't know anything. And you realize that he's not the one who fell. And then we cut to him talking about how he stepped out of the way. Right. And at this point, Haverstock has figured out that Carol's dad is probably not a great guy. Yeah, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> Foliot, who like earlier was just relentlessly dunking on him for his dumb fucking 
windmill theory just wanders in and goes, oh, by the way, I'm actually spectacularly good at my job and have been on to this guy for over a year. And I have a brilliant triple fake out plan that kind of makes sense that I want you to do for me, which is you're going to take Carol off on a romantic weekend. And then I'm going to go to her dad and go, she got kidnapped. Tell me where the guy you kidnapped is. And then for some reason, (laughs) Haverstock does a dumb thing that ruins the plan so that the two of them can have a romantic comedy act two into act three fight. About nothing. I mean, I think you just answered what the reason was. Right, but like within the universe, I am very unclear why he does this thing where he goes out and gets an extra room for her. I guess it's supposed to be like a callback to the thing on the boat where she wanted her own room. Well, she wants to leave. She's saying that she's going to leave him there and go back to London, I guess. Right, but like in a way where he could just go, don't do that. And she would go, okay. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Instead, he goes, I'm going to go out and get you an extra room (laughs) without asking her your permission. And she overhears it and misunderstands that like... Therefore, he was never in love with her or something? Uh, I'm, uh, she comes out when the hotel manager is talking about getting connecting rooms. So I think she thinks that he just wants to sleep with her. Wait, but weren't they going to be staying in the same room together? Before? No, she was going to leave. Oh, okay. She said, okay, well, I guess it's time for me to go back to London. Okay. This is apparently the thing I missed. Because in my head, she's the one that's like pushing for them to go on this weekend trip. No, he needs to hide. And initially she says, great, we'll take you to my aunt, whoever, who lives somewhere. And then Foliot is like, no, if anybody knows your relationship and knows where your aunt lives, then they might track him there. So we have to take him somewhere else. Right. Okay. So here's my confusion. Foliot pitches it to Haverstock as a different plan, where they go off on a romantic weekend. But then he reveals that he's discussed this with Carol, and Carol kind of knows the score, but apparently doesn't know the thing about pretending that they kidnapped her. Yes. Which seems like a real oversight on Foliot's part, but whatever. Well, because she doesn't know yet that her dad is the villain, and that they're using her fake kidnapping to get Van Meer back. Right. That's why they don't let her in on it. And the plan to fake her kidnapping is just about to work when she returns. Her dad is like, hooray, now I'm going to go to this like immaculately shot sequence where we interrogate Van Meer. And Foliot's like, okay, backup plan. I'm just going to overhear you doing that and follow you. He does so, and they find the apartment above a restaurant where Van Meer is being held. Unlike Haverstock, Foliot has a good plan for getting help, which has like three backup plans. And that's good because he goes inside and immediately gets caught by the woman behind the counter in the lobby of this, I guess, hotel, tiny, whatever. Doesn't really matter. What matters is that upstairs, Fisher, Carol's dad, is just about to get the information he needs, which honestly is the MacGuffin of all MacGuffins. For some reason, Van Meer knows some secret clause of a treaty that's going to be important in World War II, and it's so secret, only the two people who signed the treaty know it, which is like, 
not how treaties work. Right. Like, couldn't they just lie? (laughs) What is in place for that thing to take effect? But it's like, what needs to exist for it to make any sense to kidnap this guy and fake his assassination? And they almost get him to say it when Foliot screams at him and he comes out of the drugged out haze. And instead, they torture him off camera. And you just see Foliot reacting to it, which is great. And then Foliot, like, triple foils their plan by, like, knowing how long it's going to take for Haverstock to show up. And then making a huge scene then. And then jumping out the window like fucking James Bond of this, like, fifth floor walk up. And then, like, getting caught in the, what do you call that? The little tent above a building on the first floor. Oh, the awning. Thank you. Yeah. Gets caught in the fabric of the awning, breaks through. It completely breaks his fall. He just like stands there looking cool as shit and goes like, follow me to rescue the guy we've been trying to find for an hour. Yes. Then they do. And then the movie takes a turn because there's a half hour left. Is it a full half hour at this point? Yeah, I guess it is. So then we get to this thing where the authorities aren't going to stop Stephen Fisher, the guy who masterminded this whole thing, from leaving the country for reasons. Instead, Haverstock and Foliot are going to follow him on the same plane and arrange for him to get arrested on the other side. Carol is with him because she's still pissed at Haverstock about the weird hotel misunderstanding. And then Stephen Fisher finds out about the thing where he's going to get arrested by grabbing a cable that has been sent and reading it, even though it's not his cable. But, like, there's not really anything he can do about it, so he confesses to all of his crimes to Carol. And just then, for no reason, the plane is shot down. There is a reason, but yeah. War declared, but also, like, why this plane is being shot down is, it is literally just a misunderstanding. Yeah, they think that it's an English bomber, but... It's not. It's just a passenger plane. Right. And it gets shot down, and this whole sequence looks fucking amazing. Carol's dad sacrifices himself so that the captain doesn't die when they're all, like, hanging on to the airplane waiting to be rescued, um, because he's watched the end of Titanic and knows what to do. (laughs) They get on the boat, and the captain of the boat is like, I'm going to be a jerk and not let anybody report on this huge news story. For some reason. Right. No, there's no reports coming out of my boat. And I'm like, okay. I guess it's so Haverstock can actually do something heroic since Foliot has done basically everything heroic since about 40 minutes into the movie. Yeah, that's fair. Haverstock rigs up this thing where the captain ends up saying and listening to him describe basically everything that's happened over the phone that's connected to his editor back in New York. So they get to write up the story. And we then jump cut to a very strange ending where Haverstock is giving a radio address about everything that just happened to him. And then the blitz starts happening. And he's like, I'm going to stay here and tell my story. So America listens and goes to war because Germany sucks. And then the Star Spangled Banner plays really loudly over the credits. Yeah, like Criterion equalized everything else in the movie very, very well, except for that. 
Also, Carol is with him, but, like, fucking of course she is. For some reason in the studio. Right. Really, it's a minute at the end of the movie that it takes this, like, incredibly patriotic turn. Then the movie's over. That was a lot of plot, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah, no, a lot of shit happens in this movie, and most of it is interesting, even when it isn't good. Like... (laughs) The sequence with the extremely inept and obvious murder bodyguard is kind of hilarious and not really great, but, like, it is paced so well, I don't really care. Yeah, like, how are we defining great? Uh, I mean, yeah, this I this is what I was trying to get at about the 10. <laughs> I'm not going to give this movie a 10, David. Don't worry. I don't think we should. Uh, but I do think that, like, I would give this movie a very high grade. I think it's a very interesting movie. I think it does a lot of stuff well. And the things it does badly, I'm kind of willing to spot it. Like, I will admit that it does them badly, but it doesn't really detract that much from my enjoyment of the film that the romance here doesn't make very much sense. Because, like, it also doesn't really matter all that much. Yeah, I mean, I would say that this movie just feels like a cut-and-dry noir thriller that happens to be about international politics i don't know i'm not trying to disparage genre movies but like the places where it falls short and are silly are because it is following like a genre script and it isn't giving as much time to some of the things that would make it not standard. Eh, I don't know if I agree, because I think this is another thing like Stagecoach, where it's like, this I think is a big step forward for the noir thriller from like what we have seen. Compare this to like any of the crime thrillers we've seen. Alibi is really stacking the deck. <laughs> I mean, have we even really seen any crime thrillers? We've seen, like, five things that I think are purported to be that. And I think, like, the problem is, none of them knew how to do a thriller before now. So, like, none of them knew how to build tension. And this movie builds tension very well. Even about things where I think the situation is kind of pat or kind of ridiculous. I think it still is able to build tension and make the movie interesting despite that. This is kind of proto-Hitchcock. I get that. He makes this movie better about a dozen times. (laughs) But I do think for 1940, this is a big step forward that does a lot of really cool stuff, even if it's not a great film. But from 2019, how does it hold up? How does it hold up screen test of time-wise? And that's not necessarily like, is it horribly racist and sexist? And maybe it established all of these cliches, but there are a lot of cliches in it. Now, some of them I really like. Yeah. Like, Foliot. There is very little of this film I did not find it enjoyable to watch. Even if I do admit about half the runtime is pretty cliched. I mean, I definitely enjoyed watching it and I was totally interested in the whole thing, but- If someone were to recommend to me this movie outside of having to watch it for this project, I would be like, why this one? And why not some other better version of this film, of which there are loads? Sure. I mean, I think we can get into a slippery slope here, and I think this is kind of the 
slow argument we're going to be having about good movies over the next couple of years. But like, I in general agree with you. I don't think this is the Hitchcock movie to watch, even in this year of Academy Award nominees. Right. But the whole point of the project is not, is it movie good? It's does it stand the screen test of time? This is a totally solid movie that taken out of the context of the project is like B+. Yeah, I'd say that's true. But I do also think that like, I think the difficulty here is, yes, obviously this got a Criterion re-release because it's film historically interesting. You can see later Hitchcock in this much more easily than you can in Rebecca. It's proto-Vertigo. It's kind of cut-rate Vertigo. I mean, uh, let's not take, like, the fact that it got a Criterion release to mean that it was necessarily good, because Criterion has also just released stuff because... Eh, I wouldn't go that far, but I definitely think that they release stuff because it's notable, even if that doesn't necessarily mean that it is, on its own, a great film. <laughs> I wouldn't go as far as just because, but I do think this is a release that Criterion did because it is interesting film historically to see how Hitchcock got to be like 50s Hitchcock from this. Then explain to me why there was a Criterion release of Point Break, which arguably is a great movie, but is not a great movie. (laughs) I mean, there's several film historical reasons why Point Break is interesting. One, it's directed by one of the most successful female directors in the history of Hollywood. Two, arguably Keanu Reeves' top five performance. Yeah, actually, was it released by Criterion after Catherine Bigelow got nominated for Hurt Locker? Oh, almost certainly. If that's the case, then I understand. Almost certainly. It's got to be within the last five years they did that. I don't think anybody was really trying to restore the reputation of Point Break before that nomination. No, because it's so good. Why would it need its reputation to restore? (laughs) Right. We hadn't really yet hit that current Keanu Reeves wave of pretending Keanu Reeves has never done a bad performance because we love all of the fucking John Wick movies so much. Which, to be clear, Keanu Reeves has given a lot of good performances. I like Keanu Reeves. I've just also seen Keanu Reeves in Much Ado About Nothing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, pre-John Wick, did he have any good performances other than, like, Bill and Ted? Yeah, I think he's good in Bill and Ted. I think he's great in Speed. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Speed. But, like, yeah, most of the time he's kind of playing a blank slate pre-John Wick. Even Neo is kind of just a guy. Boy, this got off track quickly. Yeah. But I'm not really pushing for a 10 for this. I'm pushing for like seven, eight, somewhere in there, I think. So I'm not going to go as high as an eight because I don't think that it is, it's like not standalone enough, if that makes sense. So like it happened one night, I think we gave an eight or did we give it a nine? I think we gave it a nine. Okay. Well, I definitely don't want to give this a nine then. But for stuff that has been really, really good and has been like genre defining, but at the same time hasn't ever really been copied as much, that for me is an eight. I mean, this has been copied a lot. I mean, I think- an- Right, that, but that's what I'm saying. It Happened One Night has not been copied. I, I mean- It has definitely been used as a blueprint, but it hasn't been 
Xeroxed. I don't know if I agree with that. Now, granted, I don't watch a lot of romantic comedies, so I may be wrong. I think that argument is essentially that It Happened One Night is the only successful romantic comedy. (laughs) And I don't think that's true. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that it was genre-defining, but that it hasn't itself been so completely copied and has particular elements of it that are so specific I mean, I think really that's what it is for me with Foreign Correspondent is like, if people weren't talking, I could not visually tell the difference between Haverstock, Fisher, and Foliot if they were all on screen at the same time, drowning in the water. The drowning scene, you're just doomed because you can't use the context clue of their outfits, which is how I did it for the rest of the movie. Right. But Foliot and Fisher, especially, are almost fucking indistinguishable. See, I mean, I feel like if Haverstock doesn't have his hat on, that he and Fisher are incredibly similar looking. I think that's true. But Foliot and Fisher also dress somewhat similarly. And like often enter the plot or leave the plot in very similar ways. Like, I kind of kept thinking Foliot was going to turn out to be in on the conspiracy because people kept entering the room dramatically and I'd go, oh, it's, oh, no, wait, that's Fisher. And like, yes, I think that's a huge problem. I think there are sequences of this where the cinematography is amazing. Oh, absolutely. I think the interrogation sequence is fucking incredible. And I think the whole windmill sequence is great. But like, I do not think that it is full on, I could just plop this down in front of anyone at any time and they would go, this is a masterpiece. You know what it really is for me, I think, and why I keep going back to It Happened One Night specifically? The characters in Foreign Correspondent, they don't have anything that makes them particularly unique or particularly characters for that matter. Yes, I think there's like borrowed specificity in this movie, like Foliot's whole monologue about his name. Right, which is great, but otherwise he's just the cool British secret agent that recurs a billion times throughout the rest of film history. Right. Haverstock is nothing. He gets dragged into doing this job and, like, it kind of could have been any warm body, basically. Carol, Fisher, like, I'm gonna be obnoxious. What is their motivation? (laughs) But, like, really, what is their motivation? (laughs) No, I agree with you completely. I think the idea is that Fisher is, like, secretly a foreign agent, like, was actually from Germany and, like, pretended to be English for, like, 30 years. Right. um, For, like, Carol's entire life. That's sort of what he implies on the plane, which is nuts. Right, where he's like, I'm Dutch with an English accent. And you're like, where did that come from? Right. I mean, the whole conspiracy is absurd, but, like, again, if you're going to knock that, you're going to have to knock some real fucking standout Hitchcock movies. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any problem with that. Conspiracies in films are generally ridiculous. Right. Even if they're treated with absolute solemnity. I agree with you that, like, the thing about It Happened One Night is that everybody, including, like, I remember the Baxter's name is King Wesley. (laughs) Down to that level, everybody is so well realized in that film. Right. Everybody has an inner life. When my parents come into town, they often stay at a hotel in Pasadena that I don't know if I should mention the name of, but essentially they take us to the same restaurant all the time because this restaurant lets our dog go. 
come into the restaurant, uh, and my parents are obsessed with my dog. And one time we ended up talking with one of the waiters at this restaurant whose daughter is a modestly successful Disney pipeline actress is coming up in that through all the new Disney Plus shows they're doing. But he talked about how his father was one of the musicians on the bus and It Happened One Night. Oh, and I remember them. Right. I remember the bus driver on It Happened One Night. And like, I kind of talked to him about like, boy, that sounds like it's an I was there too type thing where you would like not even know that role unless somebody pointed it out. Except... In that movie, down to that level of the cast, everybody's like, oh, right, that guy. That was great. I loved that thing. Right. And this is like after our main four lead characters. And even there, if you made me pick them out of a lineup, I would probably fail on the three white guys. Um, Yeah, unless one of them had a hat. Right. And they could trick me. I do think that's the thing that brings down this movie is Hitchcock is smart enough to know he's got to do some stuff to like create some specificity to these characters. But it all feels very gimmicky. It all feels like here is a thing to latch on to. So this is a character. And not as fully realized as it could be. And it's all presented in the beginning when we are introduced to that character, and then it never comes up again. Right, it doesn't inform them in any way. Yeah. That's the thing that comes together when Hitchcock is, like, really doing thrillers on all cylinders, is the specificity of our protagonists and the specificity of the people in their life. Right. This film doesn't have that. It's got the cinematography. It's able to build tension. Both of those things are pretty impressive for 1940. It's got some pretty good exchanges occasionally, which is really just my way of saying Robert Benchley wrote on this movie. Yeah, there's definitely some clever dialogue, but again, it's clever dialogue that you could probably put in anything. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'm, I can be talked down to a seven, but I, I, mm, seven or eight, somewhere in there, like 7.5. We haven't done a 0.5 in a while. I mean, I'm going to say like the characters don't have any realized life is going to put me at a seven. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. The characters are swept up in events and I've watched plenty of movies where that's true that I still like. I think it holds it back from greatness. I don't think this is a great movie. I think it's a pretty good movie in a genre that has a lot of other pretty good movies you could watch instead. All right, well, I'm going to say seven, but if you want to say eight, that's fine. Yeah, I'll say eight. I think an enjoyable movie that doesn't fully stand up to the screen test of time because only some of its elements are still great 80 years later is it's, it's still pretty good. Should you watch this, though? No. Like, there's so many other better Hitchcocks. That actually is the thing that is why I would never give this, like, a 9 or a 10. This is not even close to this director working at the height of his power. It's not even close to this director working this year. I, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair. Uh, I just don't want to bash this movie too much, because I think it's very good. But I don't think it's great. I wasn't bored. But yeah, no, I wouldn't recommend it. If you're a Hitchcock completist, go for it. I'm not going to tell you not to watch it. I think unlike a lot of the time when we say this is interesting from a film history perspective, that's not the only... You you don't have to, like, hold on to that for dear life for two hours. But, like, you, there, you also, that's kind of the only reason to watch it still, is you're a Hitchcock completist or, like, you're addicted to early thrillers and want to see how the genre developed. 
because otherwise there's just enough stuff in that space that's better. Agreed. So for next week, we are watching The Long Voyage Home, directed by John Ford and starring John Wayne, which I assume must be a Western given that pairing, but I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, um... I don't know what to make of any of this. The poster is unsettling and looks like they are doing some trafficking. The poster is unsettling and I also initially thought there's something about that like window in the steamer that initially looked like a big elaborate headdress from Cleopatra. So I'm like, is this an Egyptian movie? And then I was like, oh, wait, no, I just need to zoom in on this picture. Yeah. So the poster is not good, which is not necessarily the same as a poster being good automatically means that the movie is bad. It doesn't mean that the movie is good because the poster is bad. Yeah, and like our last John Ford that was a like adaptation of a play was very good, so... Yeah, I love John Ford. I think he's a great director. But you did hate our last John Wayne, so maybe that cancels out. But he did The Grapes of Wrath, which right. was really incredible. Could go a lot of different ways. Tune in next week to find out what the hell this movie is about. And until then... This was a movie. This was a movie, and I have absolutely no quibble on that. Yeah, I wish I had something clever. We're still working out what to say when they're like seven or eight. <laughs> I, we don't know, people. It's a movie at that point. It's just a movie. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. I really think I should be going now. Thank you very much for the powder. Oh, uh, must you really go now? Yes, I must be going now. Really. Goodbye.